0: Well, it is a joy to be back with you and to have the privilege of once again stepping in this pulpit to proclaim uh, God's truth to you. You can look at this morning uh, in two ways. Either Nate's been gone a whole lot of, to- a whole, a whole lot of time, and so this sermon is going to be a good one. It is going to be maybe the best one he's ever preached. Or you could look at it like this. Nate's not preached for like 11 weeks. He's probably going to be a little bit rusty. So let's just go with the second one. Uh, God's Word will do its work in us regardless of whether Nate uh, sounds eloquent or not. And that is, of course, my hope every time I walk into this pulpit. It's not about me. It's not about my clarity. It's about the Lord working through His Word. And once again, I just want to thank the men who have stood in this pulpit. You've heard lots of different voices from lots of different perspectives. I trust that that was a, a healthy perspective and a healthy, healthy experience for you. And now you're stuck with me uh, week in and week out, four weeks uh, to come. And as I jumped back into the pulpit this morning, I thought rather than uh, taking you to a, a random passage of Scripture, although all Scripture is profitable for us, uh, I thought, well, let's settle in right away. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of James. As most of you know, uh, those of you who are visiting don't know this, but it is my practice, my normal practice, uh, to preach through books of the Bible and to study books of the Bible. It keeps me off of my hobby horses and soap boxes and things that I want to drill into you, and it keeps me saying what the Lord wants you to hear, and as Paul says, it keeps us considering the whole counsel of God. And so rather than jump around, we're going to look at the book of James, which is near the end of the New Testament uh, in your Bibles, near the end of your Bibles. And uh, that can be a bit misleading. Uh, because the books of the Bible are not in chronological order, and uh, the book of James is actually thought to be one of the oldest books in the New Testament, one of the earliest books written in the New Testament, written in the early 40s. And so, uh, this morning, we go to James. And so, uh, you may be asking, why are we going to James? Well, by way of introduction, why not? Uh, I have been considering this book uh, for some time. Uh, I know uh, from my visits here this summer while on sabbatical that you were reading through this book, and I thought how appropriate that the pump is being primed, so to speak, as you uh, read through the book of James. And uh, last week you were in the book of Amos, I know. I listened to the sermon. It was a good one. And uh, the book of James, or James himself, is known as the Amos of the New Testament. And so I thought how appropriate that we find ourselves here in this book. Those of you who know the Scriptures know that James is an intensely practical, hard-hitting book. It's one that's filled with uh, all kinds of wonderful imagery that helps us digest and helps us remember its truth. And it's one that I trust will be convicting this fall in our life together. One pastor stated that James has special relevance for those who are long on theory and short on practice. Now, you may hear that and you may think, well, what is he saying about us? Well, I'm not saying anything particularly about us at Ascension. I'm not making some indictment about us that all we like to do is talk and not walk what we talk. But I will say this, I know from my own heart that we always have to fight the tendency to want to be talking about things rather than actually making tangible measurable changes in our lives, to be obedient to the will of Christ and to be conformed to His image. And so my hope is that this study will change us, measurably change us, change you as a person. James doesn't beat around the bush. 108 verses and 54 imperatives doing action verbs are part of those 108 verses. Half of the book. He's interested in a real faith. James is interested in a real commitment to Christ, not one that simply talks about it. And he wants to show God's people how to do that, how to do that in your lives. And everything from how we handle our suffering to how we talk, how we use our mouths. But since this is the first week that we've been in this book, I want to tell you who you're listening to. Obviously, you're listening to James. James was a man who, tradition tells us, the Scriptures tell us, he was a man who Walked what he talked. The writer of this letter is known as James the Just. James the Just because of his righteousness, because of his own personal holiness. Now, there are a lot of James that we find in the Bible. This is not James the son of Thunder, who was one of Jesus' disciples, nor is this James, the son of Alphaeus, another one of Jesus' disciples. Rather, this is James, the brother of Jesus himself. The one who, the Scriptures tell us, rejected Jesus. Didn't believe his brother and his crazy rants in the temple. He didn't believe Jesus until he saw Jesus alive after he saw him killed. And the resurrection changed everything for James. And James became a zealous follower, not of his brother. He doesn't mention that he's the brother of Jesus, but of his Savior. James would become prominent in the Jerusalem church in the first century. He would be martyred. In 62, soon after he wrote this letter. James the just wasn't one of the 12 disciples, but Paul calls him an apostle, calls him a disciple. And so he's worthy of being heard. James wants to help us answer the questions of life. Life hurts sometimes. What do I do with that? I need wisdom. Where do I go? Why do I keep hurting people with my words? Why is there constant relational tension all the time between me and someone else in my life? And James, in 108 verses, says, let me show you. James is very much wisdom literature. Simple Proverbs that are hard to live out, that are hard to live out. So let's listen, and uh, will you listen? I'll read. If you would stand for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read the first four verses this morning and look at these closely for the next few minutes. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give Him glory. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. You know, the words of the Scripture, the words of the Bible, this book that we hold so dearly to as God's people, oftentimes these words, this counsel that we receive, this revelation from God, it makes so much sense to the world. Love your neighbor. Well, that, that's something our neighbors can get behind, right? Yeah. Love your neighbor. Just don't tell me how to live my life. Just love me. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Unbelieving neighbor says, yeah, preach it, Christian. Do that. But then there are these commands Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Whoa, wait a second. When you fast, anoint your head with oil and wash your face that your fasting might not be seen by others in the world, scratches their heads like, you mean like if you're trying to lose weight? I don't understand. And then there is this, this passage. When life so a paraphrase. When life really stinks, be joyful. When life really stinks, be joyful. You see, James writes this letter and he hits, the, hits us right off the bat with something that is so unnatural and yet so wonderfully freeing for our lives. And as we start the study of this book and as we start today's brief meditation on these first four verses, I want to be very clear that this is a command, that these are commands to come that can only really be lived out if you know and understand the God of the gospel. And I want to say that so plainly and so clearly Because James doesn't say it. James simply assumes it. You see, that, that there's no name dropping here, as I said earlier. James doesn't say, I'm Jesus' brother. I shared a room with him. The only identification with Jesus that really matters to James the just is that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is equal to God, the one who died on his behalf and rose again that he might have life. And it's this relationship with Jesus, It's the resulting power of the Holy Spirit that comes to us as a result of this relationship with Jesus that is the necessary foundation for this letter to be received and to be lived out. James assumes it, but he never says it. And that's one of the problems with James over the history of the church. Those of you who know the Scriptures, you know church history, you know that Martin Luther, the great reformer that we look up to in so many ways, called this a right strawy epistle, meaning this is an epistle of straw. Now, he didn't outright ditch it and say it wasn't part of the Bible, but he said it doesn't matter as much as Romans. Paul knew what he was talking about. And so, all along church history, the course of church history, James has struggled to gain prominence because he never mentions the person and work of Jesus Christ. He never talks about the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in all these commands that we're called to obey. And he never talks about the importance of the church, of our community, in living these things together. He just assumes. But I'm not going to assume the gospel of Jesus is necessary to hear these words. Maybe James had every right to assume he's writing to Jewish Christians who are scattered across the Roman Empire, who are suffering in some way, poverty, having given up their home far from their roots. And he says, here is how to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we get to the heart of our passage. Kids, if you're taking notes, we got two truths today that we're going to think about and meditate on. And the first one is this. God tests us to transform us. God tests us in order to transform us. Now, that's a mouthful, and I want to spend a few minutes picking it apart, but it's also the why. It's the rationale of our passage. It's verses 3 and 4 before we get to the what. You can tell I'm doing doing things backwards a bit. I'm skipping verse 2 and going to verses 3 and 4. God tests us in order to transform us. Now, now you hear those words, and I know they rub you the wrong way. Teenagers, I know they rub you the wrong way, because who likes tests, doggone it? No one likes to be tested. One of the reasons we don't like tests is because, number one, they're hard. And number two, we don't like to fail. No one likes to see that big fat red F on your paper. The testing of our faith that James is describing, I don't want you to think of it like that. That God is some grouchy schoolmaster that's, get your number two pencils, be quiet, bring it up to my desk when you're done. The testing of our faith that James is describing is different the word that he uses here is, is rare. It's only used again in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 1, and then it's used again in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint. And those references, if you want to look them up, are, are Psalm 12, 6 and Proverbs 27, 21. And the thing is that in all of those passages, I'm going to read the First Peter passage in just a second, but in all those passages, the process, the testing, is a process of refining precious gold. 1 Peter 1, In this you rejoice, though, not, though now for a little while, if necessary, grieve by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor At the revelation of Jesus Christ. The point is that this testing that James speaks of, that God does in our lives, is more like a refinement, it's more of a refinement than a grading. It's a process of of searching for purity and then making something pure, making something better, making something more beautiful, making something that's already precious more valuable. Purifying gold involves fire, the building of muscle. Involves the straining and the tearing and the literal ripping of that muscle in order that those muscles might be rebuilt bigger. And what James is saying is that God orchestrates this through the trials of our lives. Now for the Jews, the Jewish Christians who are receiving this letter, we know something of what they were experiencing. They're scattered all over the empire. They're far from their homes. There's some indication that they're struggling financially. They're struggling in poverty. We'll get that later in the letter. But James doesn't just make make it narrowly apply to them. He says various trials, whatever you come across, Whatever brokenness of your life you are faced with, and there's no if, it's it's when these things come to pass, when you meet trials. It's the same word that's used uh, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Of that man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and he meets robbers on the way and they beat him to a pulp and the Good Samaritan comes. We meet trials. We don't go looking for them, we don't go making them. They just come upon us in a broken world. And there's mystery in how exactly God deals with and interacts with these trials, but this is clear. The trials of our lives are not random. They're not out of control. They're actually the way that God is bringing about growth in His people. Now, now I want you to hear this. I want to stop right there and say, I know that what I'm saying, that what the Scriptures are saying is not an easy thing to swallow. Many of you have suffered greatly. Maybe you are suffering now greatly. You have been through and are going through incredibly difficult trials. So let me say this, though James doesn't say it explicitly, let me say this. Far from enjoying the trials that you're going through. Again, how are you viewing your father? God doesn't get some enjoyment And seeing you go through trials. No, God grieves with you. God hurts for you. And I don't have all the answers why. God doesn't give us all the answers why, but the Scriptures are clear this morning, and the promise of God is certain to you this morning that God tests us in order to transform us. And the alternative, brothers and sisters, is that God is somehow surprised by all the trials, by all the difficulties that you have faced in your life, and He is desperately trying to fix them. But He just can't get to it. And that kind of God is no God at all. Rather, the promise of God's Word is that God is after steadfastness, He's after endurance, He's after fortitude, He's after this quality in His children that in the midst of life's up and downs, they have their eyes firmly fixed on the realities of the kingdom of God, and ultimately on the King Himself, King Jesus, and that's, what's the, that's what the transformation that is happening through trials is accomplishing in us. It is making us like Jesus. God is giving us life through his life. He is allowing us to transcend our circumstances, whatever they might be. And this is so much bigger. The world has all sorts of ways to try to deal with the trials of their lives, and this is so much bigger than the old adage that says, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. No, this is, this is a whole world view that says, with a loving, personal God who is my Father, and I am His child, His beloved, precious child, that ultimately my life isn't about my comfort, but it's about His glory. It's about my character. It's about His purposes in and through me. God tests us to transform us. Peter in his letter writes something very similar. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And then what Peter says next moves us to the next point, the next truth that I want us to consider this morning. Peter says this, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And that's the second truth. This is the hard part, the harder part. Rejoice in God's uncomfortable grace. Rejoice in God's uncomfortable grace. We skipped over it, but the command is clear and certain. Count it all joy. Some translations, maybe the one you're holding, say consider it all joy. The idea is that James is not telling us how to feel. He's telling us how to think. James is asking us, telling us, to make a deliberate judgment based upon what he's going to say, based upon what I've just said about God's purposes, to make a deliberate judgment that these trials, that this testing, and we might say it this way, is the uncomfortable grace of a God that knows you and loves you and is accomplishing His purposes in your life for your good. And that's how we need to receive life. That's how we need to receive all of life. That's how we meet life. All is grace. And some of it, to say the least, is uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. That's a phrase I took from from Paul Tripp, the author that I heard one time. Rejoice in God's uncomfortable grace. And when James says all joy here in verse 2, he's not pointing to quantity, but quality. Pure joy. True joy, he says. Now, some of you might remember, those of you who've been around, might remember that last year, I think beginning of last fall, almost a year ago, that we, one week, I preached on the subject of joy as a priority for the life of God's people. We are to be a a joyful people. And I want to remind you of one of the definitions that I used in that study, Joy is a deep and durable delight that is the fruit of a mind immersed in the truth of who God is and all that He has savingly secured for us in His Son. A deep and durable delight, no matter the circumstances. It's what allowed Paul, the Apostle Paul, to to sing, to literally sing, like he was on a friend's couch. He was singing while he was chained up in prison on account of Christ. Joy in the midst of trial. It's what allows us to not despair when things don't go our way. And brothers and sisters, hear this, If we can't begin to develop, if we can't begin to cultivate, this is not easily done. I'm not saying you can just snap a finger and consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know these things. No, this is hard. But if we don't begin to cultivate this deep, otherworldly delight in all things, we will miss out on what God intends for us. Do you see that in the passage? Look at look at verse 4 again. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Let it have its full effect. The implication is that you can totally shortchange the process. You can cho- totally shortchange yourself. When God tests in order to transform, you don't rejoice. No growth takes place, or worse yet, you abandon God. And how many of us have seen that happen? We moan, we whine, some shake our fists at God, we get sick and tired of experiencing whatever is happening, and we, we seize control, or at least we try to seize control, and do whatever it costs to get out from under this thing. And in doing that, many have become spiritual casualties of trials. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't let trials cease. <laughs> we shouldn't let them go away at their appropriate time, nor am I implying that we ought to seek them out. Of course we ought not to seek them out. What I am saying, what James seems to be saying, what the Holy Spirit seems to be communicating to us this morning is that we need trials. So when they come, let them do their thing. One of the trips we took this summer was to Sun River, Oregon with Anna's family. It was a great time, and we went to this national monument, Newberry National Monument, that had a, um, a lava tube that, that uh, this ancient volcano had, had uh, not erupted there, but a lava tube had brought the lava up and brought it about. And we started talking with the ranger, and somehow the idea of forest fires came up. And of course, fires have been, we know that all too well, right? Fires, wildfires have been riddling our nation. And he said, this was his statistic, I hear differently sometimes on the news, but he said 50% of wildfires are naturally caused. And he said, we have actually done too much to keep wildfires from burning because wildfires in the natural order of things need to happen. If they don't happen, The trees aren't thinned out, and they can't grow full and wide because there's too many trees bunched up together. And I thought, that is a sermon illustration. (laughs) I didn't know it was going to be the first sermon back. Forests need fires. We hate them, but they need them. And so this simple proverb that's hard to live out from James the Just encourages us to fight the tendency to cry, Why me? Why is this happening to me? God, you've forgotten me. What, what did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve this? Fight those questions. And instead, ask these. Jesus, what are you doing? I know you love me. I don't understand. How long is this going to go on? Please make it stop. But accomplish your purposes in me. Now, I know this is, this is crazy. It's a crazy way to live. It's crazy for me to say this to some of you, knowing what some of you are dealing with. This is the promise of God to you. Ultimately, God's aim for us is the ultimate, this unattainable in this life goal of being fully developed, fully mature, as James says, perfect and complete. It's coming, it's not going to happen here but it's coming. This passage is all about letting the reality of the gospel, letting that reality work itself into the marginalization that you feel at work. Let the reality of the gospel work itself into that relationship in your life that is a thorn in your flesh, a constant irritant. That health scare or diagnosis that you've been dealing with for years or that you just received that you never thought you'd hear. And even that traffic jam that derails your best made plans. Rejoice in God's uncomfortable grace because God tests us in order to transform us. I want to close this morning with an anonymous poem. It's been around for a long time, quoted years ago by an author. Many of you have probably heard it. And I'm going to change the wording of the poem with apologies to the anonymous author that I don't know who it is, but um, I'm going to change it to the word woman rather than man. And the reason I'm going to do that is because he uses the personal pronoun when he wants to speak of who God is. He uses the personal pronoun he, and it gets confusing. Is this the he of God, or is this the he of the man? And so I'm going to change it all to woman, but it applies to all of us, all of you brothers and sisters. When God wants to drill a woman and thrill a woman, and skill a woman. When God wants to mold a woman to play the noblest part, when He yearns with all His heart to create so great and so bold a woman that all the world should be amazed, watch His methods, watch His ways. How He ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers her and hurts her and with mighty blows converts her into trial shapes of clay which only God understands, while her tortured heart is crying and she lifts up beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks when her good he undertakes how He uses whom He chooses and with every purpose fuses her, by every act induces her to try His splendor out. God knows what He's all about. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are easy words to say, simple words to hear, and yet such Difficult words to really let work in to the stink of our lives. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that You would attend to Your Word this day. I ask that You would give grace to live and to walk with this perspective knowing who you are, trusting the heart of our Father, rejoicing in your grace, however uncomfortable that grace might be, knowing that you are sovereign, that you are all-powerful, that you are all-good. Oh, Father, this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.